We are kicking off our brand new series entitled iChurch. It's a six-week series. Uh, we're going through the book of Acts, and uh, Acts chapter 2 specifically, as we're discovering what God has desired us to be. Now, for those that aren't really computer savvy, um, you might wonder, what is iChurch? And undoubtedly, though, you've heard of iPhones and iPads and iPods, and, and there's so many different i things out there put out by uh, the Apple computer company. And what's really cool about those is that they all fit together. They're designed to sync or connect with one another. And it's a really cool thing about it. The, the thing is, is that the body of Christ and the believer are designed, God has designed the believer and the body to go together. He, he's made it that way. He's created it. So what we're doing in the next six weeks is seeing how God has enabled us to sync or connect together, the believer and the body. But for many of us, we've, we may have grown up in church. We don't really, we might just attend on Sunday morning or, uh, or we may not even be involved at all. Maybe we're not even familiar with what the church is supposed to be. Well, we have to learn the steps just like anything else, how to do it right. I mean, sometimes we can even learn to do it wrong, you know? I don't, I don't know if you've, any of you have ever danced in your life, any dancers out there? That will admit it publicly. Okay, the women all raise their hands. There we go. John, yeah. Yeah, he's in the back. He, he's a dancer. Um, and I, I, I actually have been in dance in my, my life. I know you're not surprised at all. Um, but uh, I remember when I joined this certain music group, it was a show choir. I was in high school, actually junior high, and then I went into high school. And I remember going in the first time, and I'd never taken a dance lesson in my life. I had no idea how to dance. And, and I had to learn the moves. And I learned as I continued to dance that some people have natural rhythm and some people don't. <laughs> but you can still learn the steps even though you don't. And there's something wonderful about having uh, someone in rhythm and seeing it in rhythm. Remember river dance? Remember that? The, the dancers? <laughs> they're, all that, they're doing the legs and things like that. And they, but they, they're all in rhythm, right? And if one gets off of rhythm, it throws everything off, right? I remember at my church in Massachusetts, we actually sponsored a couple's dancing night where we, it was like a date night for couples. And we, we invited them to this, uh, actually at this one church that had the beautiful wooden floors and, and we lined them up and we had actually a guy that was coming to our church that had been a ballroom instructor in college. And so it was a couple's night and you learn a lot about someone when you're dancing with them. You have to be in communication. You have, to, you have to be in sync with one another. You've got to learn the steps. And he, he basically just took us through the steps that first night and, and learning how to do it. And the more that you did it, the better that you got at it. See, the church is a lot like that. You know, God invites us to dance the dance of faith. And we have to learn how to move with the body. We've got to stay in step. And it's the really community this being a part of the body, or being the church, fellowship, whatever you want to put it, is really a dance of faith. And God invites us all to participate in this dance, but we all have to learn the steps on how to dance. We don't just come out knowing every step. Uh, I, I just this, this, at the end of this month, we have our barn bash, September 30th, and we have square dancing at our barn bash. Anybody ever square danced before? Square dancing is a lot of fun. But I, I, I've done it several years, but you've got to learn how to do all these different moves, right? Al, I'm in a left that corner, lady, and weave that grand. Weave it around till you get back again. You know what I'm talking about? Do, sa, do, that kind of thing. 
you got to learn the steps, though, right? Right? Right. And the same with the body of Christ. We have to learn the steps if we're going to participate within this dance of faith. And it's to that I invite you to turn with me today as we're in Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading in two different passages, Acts chapter 2 and then Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 2, we'll be going from verse 42 through 47. And then in chapter 4, we'll be going from verse 32 through verse 35. So I'd invite you to please stand with me as we read God's word together. The Holy Spirit, to Luke, writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And flip over to Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that, that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence longing to understand how we are to participate in this dance of faith. Lord, you have given us a snapshot of the early church, how they lived and fellowshiped together, how they danced. Lord, show us the steps and help us to learn them, that we might be in sync and that your name might receive great glory and praise through each one of us. Lord, I know that there are many in our midst that are struggling. I pray that you touch them. I pray that they're the, those who are suffering, you let them, you meet that need. Let them know that you are near. Grant them your presence. For those that are in the midst of sin, I pray that you convict them. And Lord, I pray that you draw each one of us to yourself, that your name might receive glory in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You, might, you may be seated. So, we need to see how we can participate in this dance of faith. Now, I'll tell you, if you've ever uh, come upon a bad dance, I mean, it, it can be a crisis. Uh, I, I've been in groups where you had someone m just mess up entirely in the middle of a show. Like I said, I was in a singing and dancing group, and we had about 60 dancers. And I remember one time we were doing a dance routine, and it was like a swing dance. And I remember a guy grabbed, had the girl go around him, and then she was to sit on the ground, and then he would pick her up and swing her through his legs. And he swung her, and she was in the very front row, and he slipped, and she went right out into the audience. I mean, I, I, I've had that. I've had people dancing, and they're on risers, and they slip and fall, and they fall into the entire pit. I mean, it, you name it, it happens. But, you know, what that happens, they tell you, keep going. Don't stop. Just because something messed up, you keep going. Because if you don't, if you stop and you say, I've just messed up, then it then becomes a crisis. And everybody else, it, it, it messes up the entire group. And you know, there's a crisis of community going on in our churches today. 
We need to assess that crisis. If we're going to truly understand how to participate within this dance of faith, we have to assess the crisis or the current crisis of community in the church today. And it definitely is a crisis. We come to church, we are so busy. I mean, the most valuable possession we have, as we've mentioned several times before, is time. And we are a nation of individuals. And part of the crisis stems from the fact that we are just huge individuals. Individuals. That's that little, little letter A in your note. I mean, it, it, it results from individuality. It is part and parcel of who we are. We don't care so much about the greater needs of the community. We think just about ourselves. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, says this, We live in a culture in which, in which the interests and desires of the individual take precedence over those of the family, group, or community. As a result, a high percentage of people want to achieve spiritual growth without losing their independence to a church or an organized institution. And this is often the meaning behind the common protestations, I like Jesus, but not, or I am spiritual, but not religious, or I like Jesus, but not Christianity. See, people want to have Jesus, but they don't want to have the church, his bride. And they're a couple, they come together. You can't separate one from another. And we want to do that. We want to be our own types of little gods and goddesses. And God wants to sync us together. I'm reading right now a lot of American history. I've, I've shared that with you. And right now I'm reading the biography of Alexander Hamilton by a man named Ron Chernow. And it's interesting that Hamilton was probably the big, one of the biggest architects of our government and putting it together, especially from a financial perspective. Uh, he was uh, by far and away the most greatest financial genius within American history. And what's amazing about him, though, is he saw that after the Revolutionary War and having fought in it himself, that the states were a loose confederation, that if this infant nation that we had needed to be synced and brought together under one banner. And that was in the Constitution that came together. And he really saw, he was instrumental in calling that constitutional uh, Congress together to, to de debate that and put everybody on the same page. And then what happened is, is that as each... Uh, state ratified it and joined this union. Other states found themselves on the outside looking in. You know, many people in the church are like that. It's like they want to be a part of the nation, but they don't want to sign up. And it's interesting that New York really struggled of being a part of it initially. They didn't want it. They felt like they were giving up their, their rights as a state, but they needed to join the greater union. See, that's what we as a church are to do, is join this greater union. But we are a nation that's at the, part, at the heart of who we are, are, are really known for our individuality. Individuality. And it's, it's, it can be a good thing, but it can also be a tremendously bad thing. It's interesting, in the, in the sociological, classic sociological book called Habits of the Heart, which is a real interesting look at American individualism and commitment, the, the authors say this about uh, individuality. Can you call that up for me, Carl? Uh, actually, no, I, I guess I, put that, I didn't put that up there. Uh, but they say this, it's not that, that quote. Uh, American individualism, then, demands personal effort and stimulates greater energy to achieve, yet it provides little encouragement for nurturance, taking a sink-or-swim approach to moral development as well as to economic success. It admires toughness. We as American, we admire, we admire toughness, do we not? You've got to be tough. We love the Rockies, the underdogs, the, the self-made men, 
We admire toughness and strength, and we fear softness and weakness. We adulate winners while showing contempt for losers, a contempt that can descend with a crushing weight on those considered either by others or by themselves by more to be moral or social failures. In other words of this, we really we really exalt the individual, make them the, the persons that make themselves. And those that admit weakness, we don't want to be a part of. We distance ourselves from that. But see as a body of Christ, we have to we are a body of individuals, but we are a body. A body. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. God calls us to be a part of this community, this body, but our individualism and our desire for personal spiritual independence fights against this, and we flee. And we don't think it's that big a deal. We think that community is optional, and it's not. Not at all. It's, it's interesting, as I think about how people have fled community, they don't think it's a big deal. And I think of the, the comment by Edward Bethke, who wrote this, The sin of respectable people reveals itself in flight from responsibility. The sin of successful people or respectable people, reveals itself in flight from responsibility. In other words, we just we fly away from our responsibility to be with other people. So we have this individuality that is keeping us from being a community. Now, what's another reason for this crisis? A second reason is this. We, we have just tremendous insecurity. We have tremendous insecurity. We, we are insecure individuals. We don't want other people to know the junk in our lives. And it's really bad when a church shows up and people show up and they have to put on a show on how well their li- how good their life is. We do that all the time. We try to show ourselves as a certain way and we've got it all together. And that's not what community is designed to be. We're not to show how much we've got it together. We're to show, not, not that we're walking around showing how sick we are either, but we just acknowledge that we have a sickness. It's like being in the waiting room or in the emergency room and saying, I'm not really sick. Then why are you here? Why are you here? The church is a spiritual hospital. A spiritual hospital, and we're all trying to get to the great physician. We're all patients. We're all patients. But we all need the great physician more than anything else. We all have a tremendous amount of insecurity. And the, the community that we create, and this is found within our worship, but it's greaterly, greater found in our small groups where this greater intimacy occurs. And the central task of community, as Larry Crabb wrote in The Safest Place on Earth, he says this, a central task of community is to create a place that is safe enough for the walls to be torn down. Many of us have walls. We've been hurt in the past. We've had people hurt us and say hurtful things to us. So we just shut down. And we become Teflon. And nothing sticks to us. But we're to create a place that is safe enough for the walls to be torn down, safe enough for each of us to own and reveal our brokenness. Only then can the power of connecting do its job. And only then can the community be used of God to restore our souls. So we have this insecurity, and it it's, com, helps contribute to this crisis. Now let's get, jump into our, really jump into our text, because we've seen that the, the dance is all messed up. And we need to shed light on how does the dance go. It's one of those things where you've tried to learn it so many different times, and what do you have to do? I remember when we'd have to have someone who knew the dance stop us all and just walk through it again. Can I see that move again? I need to see how that step goes. Can you do it for me? Okay, i got to learn it. I keep messing that part up. 
Let's go back and learn it again and keep watching that person as an example. And that's why we go back to the early church. They're setting an example for us. So let's look at our text. We can shed light on the biblical characteristics of community. Shed light on the biblical characteristics of community. Let's look at verse 32 in chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed. Now, who was it? Some of them? Who was it? The full number. Everybody was involved in this. The full number of those who who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. See, there was this unbelievable unity that the church possessed. They were of one heart and one soul. Now see, biblical community means that we have unity, and there's three different types to it. There's probably more, but we're going to look at three today. First of all, there is a mystical unity that is going on. We have this unbelievable mystical unity that we, with all of our backgrounds, with all of our education, with all of, all of our experiences, come together in a pretty phenomenal way. That we, we come in and we, and we have, no matter where we were born, no matter what we have done, no matter how much schooling we've had, no matter how much money we make in Christ, we're all one. We have this amazing unity that transcends geography or nation or race. It transcends it all. There is a mystical unity, as Paul writes but in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6, I want you to look at this for a moment. There is one body, that's the body of Christ. And there is one spirit, there's only one Holy Spirit that unites us all together. There's not many, there's one. We were called to the one hope, one hope that we have, and that is in Jesus Christ. That belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, he draws this out a little bit further. And this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, I think through 23 is what I have at 26, but I'm not going that far. For just as the body is one, body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, there's that language again, one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And he's saying here, it doesn't matter what your background is. You're Jew or Greek, slave or free, it doesn't matter. All were made to allow to drink of that spirit. Everyone, without exception, by coming in and by faith in Christ, you were allowed in. That's an amazing thing. You were an enemy of God, far off a stranger of the covenants of promise, and God, through Jesus Christ, enables you to be a partaker of the divine nature, as 2 Peter says to us, chapter 1, verse 3. So, continuing on, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. How many? Many. Many. Now, it's interesting to me how many different churches today think it's all about, and, and just in circles, it's all about the pastor. It's not. I'm not the church. I'm a part of the church. We are the church. It's not just, it's not, people always talk about the pastor, his job. It's all of our job. We're the priesthood of all believers. Every single Christian, without exception, has a responsibility and a gift that God has given for the common good of that entire body. You are gifted. 
Every single one of you that have come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, you have a gift that God expects you to use without exception. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Some people say, well, I'm not the pastor, or well, I'm, not a, I'm not an elder, or I'm not a teacher. You're a part of the body, though. You have a, a, a purpose. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If everybody were the same, it wouldn't, we would need to be here. We would need to be here. There are people here with gifts that others don't have. Okay, anybody that's been around me any period of time, I'm a teacher by nature, right? Uh, all the time. And those that have worked with me, you also know that I am not an administrator. <laughs> Why are you laughing? All right. Now, Patty Brown has agreed to be my admin assistant right now, and she is to the core. <laughs> She's wonderfully gifted, seriously. And that's, yeah, I'll applaud that. <laughs> Standing ovation on that, okay? And the cool thing is about it, though, is she's gifted in a way that I'm not. And, 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 and it's the body coming together to help one another, right? Even as we were doing the, the barbecue, I was buried under an avalanche of details. And Jonathan Winslaw, he goes, I've got administration gifts. And I went, praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm not gifted that way, okay? I painted the back blue room. I'm not gifted to do deeds either, all right? But Mr. Rosas and Mr. Will Peterson over there, they are. And I love that. God has gifted everybody differently. Some people have natural spiritual, I mean, natural talents. Some people have other spiritual gifts, and they're still, they're all from God. And they're all to be used for His glory. And we need them all. Every single one of them, without exception, we need them all. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Some of the parts of the body are outright, you see them. The other parts that are hidden that are absolutely necessary. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. And there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. We are truly the body. Now, I love what Leslie Newbegin Many of you have probably never heard of him. He was an Anglican bishop to India. Uh, he's now with Jesus. And uh, he was the foremost writer of the subject of mission. Now, mission, uh, I'll give you a definition of a moment, uh, is, is uh, simply uh, a look in participating with God's mission, but I'll get there in just a moment. And he wrote this about salvation. He says this. He says, salvation is a making whole, and therefore it concerns the whole. This means, in terms of my own spiritual life, I am never permitted to think of my own salvation from that of God's whole family and God's whole world. See, we have this individual nature, it's just me and Jesus. Jesus is my co-pilot. 
And we, we think of it in terms of that way, coming to Jesus, just me, and not realizing that you're a part of the body. You're a part of the body. You're connected to a body. I had a person talk to me the other day. He sought my counsel on something. He's an older gentleman, and he, he, uh, he doesn't go to church, but yet he wanted the counsel of a pastor. And I, I looked at him, and I said, why don't you go to church? He goes, well, I'm, I'm, I'm mature in my faith. I don't need to. And I said, that's like saying I'm an active general, and I'm not in the army. That's just plain ludicrous. You can't be out there as a lone ranger. There are no lone, lone ranger Christians. And today people want that. They want Jesus, but not the church. But they're a pair. They're a couple. They come together. It's like saying, I'm going to let Jesus in my home, but I'm sorry, your wife's just not good enough. She offended me. The bride of Christ comes with him. They are connected in a very mystical and wonderful way. Now, I want us to look at this. There's also a different unity, not a mystical unity, but also a missional unity. A missional unity. Let's call it up there for a moment, would you, Carl? Missional unity. Now, for those of you that may not be familiar with this term, um, it comes also from the root word, which you know, which is mission. And a mission, it's understanding that each of us as, a, as individuals are when we come to Christ, we are brought in to a collective mission. We are now allowed to be participants within God's mission to reach the world. And we are missional living, meaning that every part of our life is to help accomplish that mission. And a good definition is this. Let's call this up on the screen here. Our committed, or our mission is, our committed participation as God's people, empowered by His Spirit, in obedience to his invitation and command to participate in God's own mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. Okay? Meaning that God has given you the opportunity to participate with him. You are to be a part of his mission. And mission null is the term of how we are living as we are participating in this mission. Now, undoubtedly, you know the term missionary Missionary is, is simply describing a person who is engaging in this mission in usually a cross-cultural context. Now, we are, to be, we are to be missionally united in that we are partnering with God to reach other people for Jesus. That's what we're to be doing. We, when we become children of God by faith, see, we are transformed. We are given the Holy Spirit of God, also known as the Comforter, advocate or helper and we start working in conjunction with the holy spirit within us participating in community with other believers in jesus adhering to the word of god that the life of jesus christ might be manifested in us so in other words it's by participating with other people who have the spirit of god within them that we are uniting ourselves with this mission we can't go rogue we have to be with other believers in this, participating in this mission as the Spirit of God leads us. And it's when we're doing that that we see God show up in our midst. We're to be together, united together. That's what he means in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. God shows up when we're participating in mission together. It is by submitting to him in community that the reality of Christ's kingdom is present. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. It is by submitting to him in community that the reality of Christ's kingdom is present. Now, Newbegin, I want to show you another quote by him. 
the real presence of God's own life lived in their common life will be the evidence, the witness to all the nations that the full reality of God's victorious reign is on the way. What is given here, and this is vital for true missionary thinking, because we're all missionaries, technically, is not a command but a promise. The, the presence of the Spirit will make them witnesses. In other words, as we are uniting together with other believers who have the Spirit of God, the kingdom of Christ or this, the presence of Christ is shown in the body. See, that's what Jesus says. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see that when the spiritual gifts are operating in the way that God has set forth, it says that an unbeliever will enter the doors and they will say, surely God is in this place. See, there's this, this harmony, this sinking that occurs, this beautiful dance that people stop and take notice at the beauty of it. And when they see the body of Christ truly being the body, the kingdom of God starts to manifest itself in the people of God as they continually submit to the Spirit of God. He makes another comment. Let's look at this one. Mission is not just church extension. It is something more costly and much more revolutionary. It is the action of the Holy Spirit who in his sovereign freedom both convicts the world and leads the church toward the fullness of the truth that it has not yet grasped. Next slide. Mission is not essentially an action by which the church puts forth its own power and wisdom to conquer the world around it. It's not about that. It is rather an action of God putting forth the power of His Spirit to bring the universal work of Christ for the salvation of the world nearer to its completion. And you need to think about those words. I mean, this, this, is, this is very hardcore foundational truth. That, that It's not just about showing up on Sunday morning. It's about coming together in such a profound way as we submit to the Spirit of God. And, and we can't do this without the Spirit of God, by the way. Without the Spirit of God directing this. And, it's, and the Spirit of God is not an it, it's a person. He is a person. And it's within the, the triunity of God, who himself is community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in interdependence. Showing forth his love. See, when the Father, Son, and Spirit uh, are one, they're inseparable from one another, there is this wondrous beauty because God at his essence is love that it overflows out of his being that when we as the body of Christ are coming together, the outward flow from that is love as the spirit of God comes together to bring him in a powerful way that people see Jesus in us and are drawn to him because the very presence of Christ is manifested to them. This is deep water. Deep water. We have not only a mystical and missional unity, we also have a, a different kind of unity, much more practical. We have a material unity. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 44 through 45. And all who were believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There was no one needy among them. Now some people say, are you asking me to sell your stuff? Sell my stuff? Maybe. Possibly. Look at Acts chapter 4, 34 through 35. There was not a needy person among them. So much were they giving to one another. 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. Lands or houses. They sold their house for the benefit of the community. When's the last time you heard of a church? Somebody do that in the church. And then they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and was distributed to each as any had need. I mean, they were selling their stuff, giving it away. For some, they might say, hey, this smells a little bit like communism. It's interesting, though, that the giving was voluntary. This wasn't mandatory. It was voluntary and not compelled by the government. And people still had personal possessions because they still met in their homes. So not everybody did this. And many other Christians after this still owned homes. And remember when, when Peter speaks to Ananias and Sapphira who appear in the next passage right after this because they go and they lay the money, they sold the field and laid it at the apostles' feet, but they lied about it. He even says, you weren't in compulsion to give. You didn't have to do this. But now you're doing it. Now you're lying about it because you're trying to make yourself look better than you really are. And that's when they, they were killed instantaneously. So we see that this isn't communist theory about abolishing private property and it's not commanded or implied. On the other hand, there is a voluntary generosity in sharing possessions that seems commendable. The ESV Study Bible says, see, the people were helping others. They were giving sacrificially to help other people. Now, we want to make sure that we're doing that, but many of us know that we've known people that we've helped that have abused the system, have we not? You've ever been taken advantage of by helping someone? We have. We have. People manipulate the system. That's why we're to be discerning. I would ask you to consult your elder team. Because, like, for instance, we had someone that came to us, and they said, I helped a person, and I regret doing it. They felt totally taken advantage of, because they found out that other people had done the same thing. And if they would have consulted us, we would have told them not to give in that instance, because the person had abused the system. And I've seen it time and time again. There's a time when helping can hurt. We have to be discerning in how we go about it and be smart, but we are to be doing it. And we need to make sure that we're not allowing that system to be abused. So, so don't let that stop you. Just be discerning and seek counsel and help on it. And they, the church can better speak to it. So we are to give to help others. That's what the early church did. And in Acts, we are to be, they, they captured the essential components for community for us. That's the next point there. Capturing the essential components of community. See, we can see that through them that community was for every single Christian. It was a priority. A priority. See, for some of us, going to church is a little bit like going to the dentist. It is. It's like, oh, I need to do that, but I really don't want to do it. Oh, that's not what it's supposed to be like. This is something you get to do. You get to unite with other people who believe in Jesus. That may not seem like a big deal to you, but it is. Other churches in the world, I mean, they thrive on that. That's their, their base. I remember reading about a, a church in, uh, I think it was Believers in Indonesia. I want to say it was in David Platt's book, Radical. Um, and he was talking about how these people had, or maybe it was in When Helping Hurts, but they, they came together, and this, this Westerner, it was an American, he was there listening to them share their prayer requests, and it's nothing like it was in, in our culture. You had, he goes, a woman's like, can you pray for my husband? He's been beating me each and every night. I don't want him to beat me tonight. Or, or I mean, they're praying for, I, I don't have any food. They're praying for things like that, and here we are about Aunt Ethel's big toe and her bunions, Okay? And, and they're, they're, it's just different. 
And they, they, it becomes their lifeline. And for us, it's just something extra, superfluous. Something we can add to it, like dressing on salad. But it needs to be integral. It's the heartbeat of who we are. Coming together, not just in worship, which is the main thing. This is the main way we do it. And you should be here. Worshiping with the other body, uh, other Christians, being the body, especially when we partake of the Lord's Supper. That's the greatest sign of our unity. But also within small groups, we really encourage you to get in part of a small group because here it's a one-way communication where you're hearing the Word of God. But when you come into small groups, now you're engaging in communication with other believers and you're being sharpened, you're growing in your faith. We need one another to grow. I used to think when I first got saved that I didn't need another Christians. It was foolish. I love what Tim Keller writes here. Let's look at this quote. There is no way you will be able to grow spiritually apart from deep involvement in a community of other believers. You can't live the Christian life without a band of Christian friends, without a family of believers in which you find a place. Now, Keller also tells the story about C.S. Lewis, and you know how much I love C.S. Lewis. And I've shared this story with you before, and I want to show it to you again as we look at this. Now, C.S. Lewis was a part of a group called the Inklings. These are other authors. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was one of them, the author of The Lord of the Rings, and a man, another author by the name of Charles William. Now, Charles William died, and uh, after he died, Lewis writes this essay on friendship, on how it affected him. And he says this, he says, In each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles Williams is dead, I shall never again see Ronald Tolkien's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, because he think I have more time with Ronald now because Charles is dead. He goes, I actually have less. Now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. And here, for every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is, and this is profound, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. Think about that. They're crying holy, 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 and, one, and each time they're doing it, they're growing. Each of them is growing in their understanding of who God is. And they're, they're looking at one, seeing one another and seeing what God's doing for the other angel and the other angel, and it's making their vision of God grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's why they keep saying, holy, holy, holy. He's so amazing. He's so much more grand than we ever imagined. And they keep circling him. And he keeps getting better and better. And they're hearing what's seeing what, for themselves, and they're seeing what God is doing in that one, and God is doing in that one, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The more that thus we share or share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. See, this only comes from being and participating together. There's a side of us that's brought out by other believers that if that person's not there, it doesn't come out. It's funny, I was uh, talking with my daughter the other way, day, and she's like, uh, uh, she said, Daddy, I only hear you laugh like, <laughs> I don't like really hear you laugh. And then my, my best friend was in town that I grew up with. He's a believer. He's an elder at his church in Champaign. And he stayed at my house for three days. And the first night that he was there, I laughed so hard till I cried. And he even said, he goes, you know, only with you can I get this fun. <laughs> I said, stupid, but that's okay. But there's something about him that brings out something in me. Right? Do you have that, someone in your life? 
that brings that other side out of you? See, it's us coming together as a community, especially within small groups, that I start to learn more about God by seeing what he's doing in your life, or your life, or your life. And I grow in my understanding of God, and then I grow in praise of him. See, Lewis captured something profound, that we need one another. We need to be sharing together. That's what small groups are about. It's not a, a lecture time. It's about us to be sharing and seeing what God and what we're seeing of God and then sharing that together and growing and being admonished and growing in our understanding. We're to be making community a priority. Now, notice they also had hospitality. Hospitality. Excuse me, hospitality. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Where were they meeting? Each other's homes. They threw wide the doors. Do you know what Peter says to us? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Look, check this verse out up there. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Ah, i got to clean the house again. Ah. I mean, we do that, right? I mean, sometimes I, I like hosting small group because it makes us have to clean our house. <laughs> it's like, woohoo, we get to clean the house again. <laughs> uh, so we need to be showing hospitality. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you've had someone over for chur- from church for dinner? tea, coffee, hangout. It doesn't have to be an all-night thing. Just set the schedule. Hey, we'd like to come over for an hour and a half and just hang out for a little bit. Invite you over. Have some food with us. Let's just hang out. Have some cup of coffee. How are you? Let's talk. Let's get to know one another. In the next few weeks, we're going to be, we're, we're trying to do this on a more concentrated level. We did this uh, several weeks ago. We're going to be doing it. I'm not sure when it is, Patty. It's the Fast Fellowship. The f- October 14th, we're going to do Fast Fellowship. We did this uh, uh, several weeks ago, and what it is is we want you to get to know one another. So what we're doing is basically speed dating, fellowship style, okay? And what we do is, is we're asking you to stay after church, and then we're going to assign you a number, and you're going to sign a partner, and we're going to have you sit together, and then after that, we're going to give you three minutes, and then we're going to rotate. And you're going to get to know six or seven different people in an hour that you may not otherwise know. Just know a little bit about them, because we need to truly be the body. We're busy people. Some of us, we're filled up with relationships, but it get, helps us to get to know one another. I mean, how many of you know everybody's name in this sanctuary right now? We need to know one another. We need to be the body. And that means old, younger, different backgrounds, college students, high school students. Students, don't think that you're not a part of this. You are an integral part. We need to make sure that you're being brought in and connected to the body. Because you are just as needed as everyone else is. So we have this, we're to be hospitable, opening our houses to one another. There was also the component of intimacy. They were meeting together daily, sharing their burdens, what they needed. Part of this community is learning to share one another's burdens. I want to show you this pretty cool quote by Ann Ortland in her book, Up With Worship. She says that people come into worship services are one of two things. They're either grapes or marbles. She goes, can be grouped into two categories, marbles or grapes. Marbles are single units that don't affect each other except in collision. Grapes, on the other hand, mingle juices. Each one is a part of the fragrance of the church body. The early church Christians didn't bounce around like loose marbles, ricocheting in all directions. They picture them as a cluster of ripe grapes, squeezed together by persecution, bleeding and mingling into one another. Fellowship and worship, then, is genuine Christianity freely shared among God's family members. It's sad to think of how many Christians today are missing that kind of closeness. So let me ask you a question. Are you a marble or are you a grape? 
Which are you? I think we can be pretty obvious. God wants us to be a grape, not a marble. We are to be marbles, not grapes. We're to be to have an intimacy where we are sharing one another's lives and our brokenness. There is also one another necessity of community is accountability. Accountability. And we see this in Matthew chapter 18. We see in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Carl, can you call that up for me? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. See, they were confessing their sins together. They, they held one another accountable that if there's sin, I'm going to confront you about that sin. See, they were devoting themselves to the fellowship. The, literal, the word there in Greek is koinonia, which means participation or sharing which likely can, uh, covers both the Lord's Supper and a larger fellowship meal. They were coming together and praying together in house meetings and, and sometimes likely in a temple. Now, it's interesting enough, you can also see this, this accountability aspect because if they were truly sharing the Lord's Supper together, it required them to be confessing their sins to one another. Because we know that we've wronged one another and we need to confess our sins to one another so we can partake of communion or the Lord's table freely. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a World War II martyr, pastor, theologian, uh, uh, just profound writer, wrote a book called Life Together. And in it, he talks about the power of confession. He says this, In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself, to withdraw him from the community. We've said that before. What happens when you sin? Do you want to be at church anymore? No! You don't want to be in fellowship with God's people. Not at all! You have no desire! But God is saying, no, I'm bringing you back in because the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over them. And the more deeply he becomes in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. And when you're in intimacy and community, you can't do it. You just can't. You can put up a mask for so long, but after a while, you can't do it anymore. People are really going to see who you are and all of your ugliness. Sin shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. Because then they're being hypocritical, but that can't last forever. The expressed acknowledge, acknowledge sin. When you're, in, when you're confessing to one another, then it's, the sin has lost its all, all its power. It can no longer tear the fellowship asunder. Now the fellowship bears the sin of the brother. He is no longer alone with his evil, for he has cast off his sin in confession and handed it over to God. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. See, if you hold on to your sin, you're going to be alienated from community. You need to be able to confess it. And some people fear, what are other people going to think of me? I guarantee that people have sin, without exception. Again, if they're in the hospital, something's wrong. They recognize there's a sickness, a disease that they have. Their symptoms may not be as obvious as yours are, but they have a, at their root a disease. They know they keep going for the physician for treatment. So, right now, we look at, we look at through all of these texts. We, we have to decide, each of us, what to do. We've seen kind of some of the steps. We're going to be looking more at this in the next several weeks as we're looking at some of the benchmarks or hallmarks 
of the early church. But we see the dance. The question is, is are we going to enter in? Are we going to try to participate in that dance? Are we going to learn the steps? Sometimes we're going to mess up. We're going to step on other people's toes. We're going to or maybe look foolish and flying everywhere, but we keep doing it. The, better, the more that you do it, the better you get at it. So we face the inevitable choice of community. Each one of us do. We face it squarely. We can choose. I mean, every single Christian, without exception, must decide on isolation versus involvement. You could try to be an island unto yourself, be a solitary Lone Ranger Christian, but really we've shown that you can't do it. You have to be, there's connected to the body. There's, you have to be connected to the body, but you can choose it. You can be isolated from everybody else, or you can be involved. You can try to do your own thing, or you can try to do what God is doing in the midst of his people. You can also choose to give yourself over to selfishness or service. Selfishness or service. Are you going to be selfish? Or are you going to give? Are you going to serve the greater body, coming together and being the community that God wants us to be? Or you can also choose possessions or people. Possessions or people. To give you an idea of this, I had a, uh, a friend of mine that I grew up with. I remember um, I'd been saved for a few years, and I was talking to my friend's dad, who I knew was just a big, giant pervert. And so I was trying to share the gospel with him, and I started talking about it, and he stops and puts his hand up, and he goes, I already know it, and he starts quoting it back to me. I was very surprised. He said, I was actually a deacon in the church. That just killed me. And he said, what I did, I saw what people were giving week in and week out, and we were always short on budget. But I knew what all, half the people in there made, and I knew what the budget should be by the money that's being made. And he goes, they're all hypocrites. They say they love Jesus, but they don't love Jesus really, because if they did, they would have given. And he said, so I decided to keep my money to myself, quit going to church, why hang out with the hypocrites anyway? So, I mean, he bought a boat, he bought a lot of nice TVs and computer saw. I mean, he bought a lot of toys, and he played with his toys, and he still plays with his toys. And, and, and that, I've never forgotten that. And I, and, and I understand where he was coming from, because we are all in process, and we all know in the heart of hearts we're not doing what God wants us to do, for many of us. There is that hypocritical side to us, but he should have come alongside those individuals and confronted them in love and been patient with them. Instead, he had his own self-righteousness and removed himself or extricated himself from the situation rather than have the responsibilities of people. And he chose possessions over people. We're all faced with that. So the question is, is where, where, where are we right now? Where are you? Are you going to participate in that? Are you going to accept, choose isolationism or being isolated? Or are you going to be involved? Are you going to be selfish or are you going to serve? I mean, we still have stuff that you can serve at even with generations that's going on. We're still looking for a games director. We're looking for someone to do that. We're looking for people to step up into these different areas and avenues. We're... And, are you going to choose possessions or people? We all must make that inevitable choice of community, of partnering with God's people. As ugly as the bride may be, as rebellious as the bride may be, she's still his bride. We are still his church. And we must realize and see that within ourselves and choose to be a part of that. Now maybe you're here today and you say, I've never, I, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know what you mean by community. I don't know what you mean by church. I'm not even sure who Jesus is. Well, let me tell you that Jesus is the one who died for you. 
He gave his life to die on the cross for your sins and mine. That you and I were by nature children of wrath. That we were destined to be destroyed, lost in our sins. But God did what we could not do by dying on the cross on our behalf and taking a punishment upon ourselves that by faith in him we can have life in and through his name. That is available to all without exception. Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter if you've grown up in church. It doesn't matter if you've been a great sinner. That God's grace is sufficient for you and can save and transform your life. Your job is to believe that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Call on him and he will save and transform your life, forgive your sin, and give you purpose with him and give you a place in the dance. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, I am humbled to know that you have called us to yourself. And Lord, I've been rebuked at the same time, seeing how integral community is for us to be together, Lord, in worship and in small groups and coming together even at generations, to be together as the body of Christ, sharing, serving, surrendering, sacrificing together. Lord, we pray that you help us to fellowship. There is a crisis of fellowship, a crisis of community within our world today. Lord, we've been individuals and solitary cowboy Christians that are too good or too independent to humble ourselves and throw in our hat in the ring and join with other brothers and sisters in Christ to serve. Lord, help us to be united, to be truly united by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one hope that we were called as one spirit has united us in the body that bears your name. So Lord, please, we are your bride, and we ask that we might participate with you in the dance of faith Lord, forgive us when we, we mess up or we lose a step or we forget a move. But Lord, help us to continually to step back in, continuing on, knowing that that dance will bring your name great glory. Help, Lord, help us to be synced together as believers to the body, that your name might receive glory in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.